From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Brian Mullady is in the house, ready to take your phone calls if you'd like to be part of the program. The number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd love to hear from you. That number is one 205 2712985 and we will even put you straight to the front of the line at 12052712985 or you can always send us an email that email address is openline at ewtn.com I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is here every Thursday, Keeping Portland Weird, Father Brian Mullady. How are you? Just fine, thank you. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about uh, a feast this week, the Exaltation of the Holy Cross. And uh, you're going to talk about just how uh, important that uh, finding of St. Helena was, huh? Right. Well, uh, I was watching uh, Father Mitch on the Mass, and he gave a very credible historical analysis of how the cross was found. And uh, one of the Roman emperors was excavating uh, to build the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and they found the Holy Cross. And by tradition, as you know, St. Helena, there were several, and they didn't know which one was which, so they applied it to someone, and uh, when a miracle happened, they identified it. And then they divided it into thirds, and they sent a third to Rome, a third was kept in Jerusalem, and I believe a third was sent to Constantinople. So this particular feast celebrates the finding of the true cross, but it also is different from Good Friday, because on Good Friday we celebrate the pain of our Lord and the sorrow of the Passion. But you'll notice this uh, feast is entitled The Triumph of the Cross. And so it emphasizes how important the cross is in our religion. And it's kind of a gruesome symbol, as you know, it's one of the one of the most gruesome symbols of all religions in the earth because the death by crucifixion was uh, horrendous. And it was basically self-suffocation. I'm sure some of you have heard that they've examined how a person dies on the cross because, of course, we don't really do crucifixion today. And the idea was that they either nailed you or tied you to the cross and then as you were holding yourself up, you'd eventually tire and your head would start to fall into your chest and eventually it would cut off your wind and you'd self-suffocate. 
So that's why, as you know, they broke the legs of the thieves um, in the Passion, so they die quickly because they couldn't hold themselves up anymore. Now, it's interesting for the Feast of the Holy Cross, one of the readings that's chosen, first reading of the Book of Numbers, is about the Israelites complaining about the desert, and so the Lord sends them those serpents to bite them, and they cry out, you know, for mercy, and so God tells them, but it's one of the examples in the Old Testament of the prohibition against images being violated, because he tells them to make an image of a serpent and put it on a pole, and this is because the serpent represents their disease. In fact, I believe it's used to be anyway, still uses the symbol for the medical profession. And everyone who looked at the serpent was healed. Now, a similar thing is true concerning the cross, only this disease is a moral disease. It's a disease that results from the original sin. It's a disease in which we lost grace, which is... Uh, completely unnatural and frustrating of human nature. And if a person should die in such a state, as you know, this is the primary punishment of hell because you have a dynamism in your character toward heaven, but you need God's grace to arrive at it. And so you're, in a sense, eternally frustrated. And freedom and nature disagree. Your moral choices disagree what your nature is oriented to. And this itself causes great suffering to the person. And not only to the person, but it's the primary source of strife in the human race. Now, therefore, when we're asked in this feast to look upon our Lord crucified on the cross, we're asked to see his triumph as both the priest and the victim on the altar of the cross over sin and death. And because of that triumph, because of his sacrifice, we're enabled now to realize our nature again. There is a beautiful Latin hymn from the early church, which is sung often on the uh, Good Friday, and it talks about the royal banners. It's called Vexilla Regis. Abroad the royal banners fly, now shines the cross mystery. Upon it life did death endure, and yet by death did life procure. And then in the midst of this hymn, we worship the cross, because the cross represents the person who's on it dying. Hail cross of hopes the most sublime, now in this mournful passion tide. Grant to the just increase of grace, and every sinner's crime efface. Well... With the finding of the relic, the true cross, this mystery is not only historically brought present to us, it's not a myth. Jesus didn't just seem to die. In his human nature, he actually died. And he died this as a result of his own freedom, willing to embrace this because he knew about the resurrection. And he did this as an offering of the virtue of religion by which he himself, as God, through his human nature, sought to repay God for the order of the world that had been interrupted in original sin. So 
it's such a beautiful, beautiful feast that we need always, every day, to say, Hail, cross our one reliance. Hail. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Grab one of these open phone lines. Just getting started on an open line Thursday. I have a YouTube question from Jose, and I've never really considered this myself. I don't know if you have run across this, Father. But a woman who was married and divorced in Judaism, but then converts to Catholicism, can she marry? Uh, yes, but she has to get a special dispensation from her. If you mean not the person she was married to in Judaism. Right. Yeah. Uh, yes, but she has to get a, it's called a privilege of the faith. It's a special disp- papal dispensation in favor of the faith. Um, so that she may uh, set aside the marriage, which is considered to be um, natural and indissoluble, um, in favor of the sacramental marriage, which, remember, is primarily caused by baptism. So uh, Now, would this be the same situation for any non-Christian religion? Yes. Yeah. Uh, marriage is natural and indissoluble regardless of whether it's a sacrament or not. But in the Christian religion, through baptism, it takes on a new dimension, and that is that it becomes a means of salvation by which the couple, through their sacrifice, become priests and victims to each other. And not only that, but you remember St. Paul compares it to Christ's love for the church in Ephesians. So it has many, many deeper uh, meanings. And in certain circumstances, anyone in a non-Christian religion who does experience a valid marriage, of course, um, but it's indissoluble, but not a sacramental marriage, it's indissoluble by nature. But when the supernatural comes along, that trumps that union. And so the supernatural gives it a different meaning, and that different meaning can, with the church, it has to be with the church's dispensation, um, be allow a person to contract a, a Christian marriage. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. We've still got three open lines for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Join a deeper conversation about the most consequential issues facing Catholics today on EWTN News In-Depth with Monse Alvarado. Uh, And you can even get EWTN News In-Depth delivered to your email inbox with details on each week's show, just go to EWTN.com slash in-depth and sign up today. 
Again, 833-288-3986 is our toll-free number. First up today is Louie in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, watching us on YouTube. Louie, you are on with Father Brian. Hey, good afternoon, Father. Hi. You know, I wanted to ask a question as far as Pentecost and being that the Holy Spirit uh, was given to us, was that the first revelation of the Holy Spirit into this world, or had it shown been shown prior in different ways? Well, of course, one experiences the Holy Spirit in a hidden way all throughout the uh, New Testament, when the bright shining cloud, uh, you know, and when this is my beloved Son, the beloved is taken to being the Holy Spirit's presence, or you remember that the Holy Spirit descends upon Christ in the form of a dove in his baptism. There are a number of places where the Holy Spirit's presence is experienced, but the public revelation of the Holy Spirit as founding the church as a public association or society is, is, occurs on Pentecost because the Holy Spirit is given through the apostles there for the whole human race, and you can see that by all the various nations represented coming to the Passover. Um, the Holy Spirit's private institution of the church, I suppose you could put it that way, occurs when Jesus breathes on the apostles in the upper room, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit, and then he gives them the power to forgive sins. But as for that truth being made known to everyone, it's in the, um, you know, the wind and the fire in the uh, public manifestation on Pentecost Sunday. And it's in that time that the Babel is reversed. Remember, Babel was the final experience of the original sin because even what should be a sign of our rationality and our communication, our language, becomes a sign of our disintegration. And the reason it's a disintegration is because we don't have communion with God. Once communion with God is given back to us in Pentecost publicly, then they speak a language that everyone understands, which is the language of faith. So, uh, no, there were many manifestations of the Holy Spirit before Pentecost, but the most public and the one that establishes the church once Christ goes uh, and, and sends the Spirit again to establish the new community, the new Israel, uh, would be the one on Pentecost Sunday. It's the clearest. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Next up is Hannah, a first-time caller in Charlotte, North Carolina, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hannah, thanks for holding. Welcome to the program. Sure, thank you. Um, yes, Father, I noticed that you said um, that we worship the cross, and I know that that term is used, um, I believe, on this Friday. Why, uh, I mean, we know that we don't worship anything but God, so why is that term used? The term is used in the same way that we uh, worship or venerate uh, the Eucharist 
and also icons of Jesus because it has to do with who any any um, expression of adoration isn't to the thing but it's to who the person the thing represents so the cross has a special uh, veneration and that's almost uh, really identical almost with um, the, the Eucharist as Jesus is of course, it is Christ himself, but also his human nature. And that Greek term for that is latria. So, for example, you can see that by the fact that when we carry the cross in procession, we surround it with candles, as you recall. It's a special veneration, but it's not for the thing. It's not for the wood or the whatever it's made of. It's for the person it represents and his triumph over death. Does that help, Hannah? Yes, thank you very much. You're very welcome. Surely. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Lynn would like to know, what is the difference between the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son and the begetting of the Son from the Father? The difference is that you're using language to try to express the fact that the only, and it's language that limps, it's obviously a human analogy, because we never totally understand the Trinity. You remember the famous uh, story of St. Augustine that they used to put in the catechisms when I was a little boy. Like I remember there was a picture of it. And he was writing a book on the Trinity. It's very deep. And he was walking along the shore in North Africa, and he saw a little boy trying to go into the ocean, taking in a pail water from the ocean, dumping it into a hole. So St. Augustine was very intrigued by this, and he said, what are you trying to do? And the kid said, well, I'm trying to put the ocean in the hole. And St. Augustine said, well, you can't do that because the ocean's too big and the hole's too small. And the child answered, that's the same with the human mind trying to understand the Trinity. <laughs> <laughs> and disappeared because it was actually Christ. <laughs> using, using our human categories, the Son is always referred to as a Son, right? So the Son's relationship with the Father is the only distinction which causes the distinction of the persons. So remember, both of the persons are equally God, both are equally worthy of veneration, both are equally worthy of worship. There is no... Um, subordination, so that's a heresy of the Son to the Father. The only distinction is in the relation of origin. So the Father has no origin, and that's why we call him Father. The Son's origin is uniquely from one, the Father, and that's why we call him Son. And that's why we use the word begetting, because sons are begotten, only begotten about the Son. But then, remember, the Holy Spirit proceeds. It has two persons as its source, and that's what makes it different, him different from the Father and the Son. And the, the ancient fathers used to use uh, analogies for this. One of them was, uh, they used to call the Holy Spirit the sweet kiss of the Father for the Son. 
because as human lovers share life and breath through a kiss, so the Holy Spirit, which proceeds after the manner of love, not truth, although all three of the persons are true, all three of the persons are loving, all three of the persons create, by the way, they're all present in the creation. Um, the whole, that's what helps us to distinguish the Holy Spirit as an absolutely unique person. But remember, there's no subordination. So the word procession is a very neutral word. And it just means something that comes from something else. Uh, not in the specific sense like the Son and the Father, but in the most general sense possible. And we don't have words in language that express the, the Holy Spirit's uh, coming forth like this, except to say that he comes forth after the manner of love. But there's no real word that's as good as you know, procession. Uh, he's not really begotten, because that would make him the same as the Son and the Father. So um, I remember when I used to teach Trinity to the seminarians, I used to have this exercise for them, and they had to keep repeating it over and over again. Yes, I was the old school, <laughs> where you don't you have, you have to learn stuff by repetition, right? So it would be, what's the mystery of the Trinity? One nature, two processions, three relations, four notions, uh, 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 in the three persons, four relations, five notions. <laughs> now, if you can get all that down and you can remember what it all means, you pretty much understand what the Christian religion teaches about the Holy Trinity. So uh, it, it, it's a difference only to explain the difference in origin, O-R-I-G-I-N, uh, which allows us to distinguish the second person of the Trinity from the first and the third. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Father, you know as well as anyone that in because of our human condition, every time of prayer is not created equal. And to that end, Andrew asked the question, is prayer without intention good or bad? Prayer without intention. Well, I don't quite understand what that means. Does it just mean formalistic prayer with no personal involvement? Uh, if you were intending, for example, it's, uh, to apply it to someone, but you weren't personally involved in it, it would still have a, um, a, you know, some value. But if all you mean is um, parrot-like repetition with no mm -hmm. personal involvement for any reason whatsoever, except just to say the words. I think that's what he's referring to. Well, that, that wouldn't have any meaning. Christ himself says that, you know. The multiplication of your prayers uh, isn't going to do any good. And, and the example he's using, he purposely uses, because the pagans believed that their prayer would be ineffective unless they mentioned every single god and every single thing they were interested in. Whereas that leaves the Lord open then to emphasizing, you know, well, what it should be is like this. And that's when he gives the famous uh, Ratio Dominic, you know, the uh, Lord's Prayer, which is the model for all prayer. He doesn't say you have to reduce it to these things, 
But this is the sort of thing it is. And so now if you mean you have to concentrate on every single word while you're doing it, no, I think that's not true. You have to have a virtual intention to love God when you say it. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Straight ahead, we'll talk to Molly in Colorado, and we hope to talk to you as well. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Still a couple of lines open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. As advertised, next up is Molly in Fort Collins, Colorado, listening on the Catholic Radio Network. Molly, you are on with Father Brian. Hello, Father. Thank you. Sure. So my, my question regards the nine choirs of angels that, uh, that are taught and being part of the Catholic teaching uh, and is it through scripture or tradition? And when were the nine choirs named and designated as such? And most importantly, are there um, are there designations that are similar for the bad angels under Lucifer? That's my question. Okay. Well, I don't think the second thing I can answer because there's nothing in scripture or tradition about that. Um, Regarding the first part, um, as far as I remember, now again, I, I my memory's perfect. I, I'm not really an encyclopedia that could call this stuff right to mind at this instant. But I believe the enumeration of the nine choirs of angels in their name comes from a, a source that was actually, a, 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 who was actually a Neoplatonic philosopher who lived around the fifth century and uh, Dionysius the Areopagite. And uh, he took the name Dionysius because of the famous disciple of St. Paul, but he wasn't really, a, a, he's not that person. People used to call their, use titles or authorship for their books by other famous people just to get people to read them in those times. And it wasn't considered plagiarism, it was just what people did. But the uh, idea of the choirs of angels uh, has its origin in scripture and also, interestingly enough, in um, the philosophy. Because Aristotle talked about uh, the, what he called the separated substances, which we, what we call angels, uh, communicating from top to bottom by pure intelligence. And uh, a similar thing is true of the angels. You know, they don't know like we do by abstraction from our senses because they don't have a body. All of their knowledge is by um, in, infused from above. And also the angels, because they don't have a body, they don't have a common nature. Each angel is its own unique nature. And so the, seven, the choirs of angels are an attempt to demonstrate that there are those that have specific purposes or that are deeper in their knowledge of God than others depending on what they've been illumined to do. And I believe, I could be mistaken about this, but I think also some of the enumeration traces itself to Qumran and to the uh, kind of um, 
apocryphal literature, which is very eschatological, very interested in this sort of thing, uh, just around the time of John the Baptist and our Lord. But the whole thing is you have these perfect heavenly creatures. Now, they're not perfect like God is, but they're perfect in the sense that they have this supreme intelligence, much more than we do, and that they were experienced by illumination from above uh, as much as they've been called upon to enter into the mystery of God. And, interestingly enough, when St. Augustine wrote his uh, treatise on the creation of the world, Genesis, and the literal meaning now, he called it the literal meaning, not the poetic meaning. The famous evening and morning knowledge in the seven days. Uh, obviously, that's not evening and morning in the classic sense of times of day, because the sun wasn't even created until the fourth day. But he says that's the knowledge of God which the angels have through themselves, that's the morning knowledge, and which they have through creation, that's the evening knowledge. And the fact that it's the seven days shows that God's creation and the angel's presence is present in all of time and all of space, the week being a perfect enumeration of time. So the doctrine of the choirs of angels is very, very deep, but I think its full enumeration occurred primarily in Dionysius the Areopagite. Uh, St. Thomas, uh, in his uh, analysis of this, uses that particular source because it was very famous in the Middle Ages and everybody read it. And um, also, uh, the, the choirs of angels, as I said, are something that is accessible to even by Aristotle. Aristotle knew there were substances which weren't, didn't have bodies, were pure spirits, but weren't God. And they sort of were in a middle category between <coughs> material creation and God himself with this absolutely perfect knowledge. Uh, one place where you can find the angels described a lot, besides places like Tobit or Daniel, is the book of Job. And there you have the wicked angels talked about too. Because remember, Satan's allowed to tempt Job. So that's, that's about all I can tell you. God bless you, Molly. Thanks so much. We appreciate the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Kristen in Kansas City, Missouri, listening on the Catholic Radio Network. Kristen, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father Brian. Um, some of us were talking after Mass last Sunday. Um, we were noticing that there was a trend in our city going back to just all-male altar servers. And one man said, well, way back in the 70s, it was only supposed to be like if there wasn't availability of males that they would allow the girl servers and that just certain parishes just took off with it and did whatever they want. And could you clarify the, or, the origins of, of girl servers? Because I always thought that, you know, the altar servers, that was a ground for fostering vocations to the priesthood and how that came about and why. Well, that's one of our shadow experiences in the church <laughs> because altar servers were, female altar servers were prohibited uh, 
up until 1988 or something, or even 1990. And what happened was uh, some of the feminists from this country and Europe went to Rome and they demanded altar servers. And the Pope was away at the time. John Paul II was away on one of his trips. So the cardinal who was in charge just approved it. And when the Pope came back, he was not happy camper, but he did go against his uh, serve his card, you know, his cardinal in this. But um, it uh, it was this kind of sleight of hand the way it was all done. Now, I guess there's nothing inherently against having uh, altar girls, uh, but many people uh, now that the novelty's worn off. And now that other people have been getting the idea, because one of the reasons they wanted it was because they looked upon it as a doorway to the diaconate, uh, that pe pe the luster has kind of gone off this now. And the, some, some of the girls have served, you know, great with great distinction. I don't want to criticize them because they, you know, they've been very, very um, uh, it's conscientious about the way they've approached the idea of altar servers. But I think you're right that uh, they were an excellent source of vocations. They helped to introduce boys into the altar. And unfortunately, once the girls get involved in some places, a lot of the boys just drop out for some reason. And also, uh, my general experience of it has been, and I, I don't want to be critical exactly, but sometimes the girls, uh, well, you know, they're up in public. And so they're very interested in uh, their appearance and all those things. Rightly so, but it's not exactly the time and the place to be too interested in that. So it tends to diminish um, the uh, supernatural character of the mass. Not that they intended that, but it's just part of the part of the deal. So that's why it's been being reexamined by a number of people, and there are a number of younger pastors who they they don't want to forbid the girls because they've been doing it for so long, but their avenue is just not to train new ones, you know, to let them finally get too old, and then you know they'll start just training boys then. And, and, and I think it's a realistic interest in vocations to the, the priesthood, as you were saying. Thanks, Kristen. We appreciate the call today. That opens up another line for you at 833-288-EWTN. Plenty of time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Don is in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Don, you're on with Father Brian. Hi, Father. My question is about the Dutro Canonical Books. I understand when the canon was formed that there was some discussion about whether they should be included or not. I think that was in the 4th century. Protestants claim that Catholics didn't hold them to be fully canonical until the Council of Trent. I don't think that's quite true, but I really don't know the story behind that, and I'm interested if, uh, for your expertise. Okay, great. I do know something about that. Um... When the temple was destroyed, the rabbis got together in a place called Jamnia to try to save what they could of the Jewish religion. 
because obviously the cult in the temple is extremely central to the whole idea. And when you can't worship in the temple anymore, uh, what are you going to do? So one of the discussions that occurred was what scriptures would be considered to be authoritative in this refounding in a way. So my understanding is that what they basically decided was only Hebrew scriptures could be included in that. So in other words, the whole Greek Septuagint, which was a product of the diaspora, remember, of the Jews, the books that were unique to that, it was the Greek translation for the people who didn't live in Israel anymore and weren't familiar with Hebrew much, um, those books were just left out of consideration. And so when the, uh, the church, uh, I believe it was really St. Jerome around that time, where there was a question about them, they just said, no, traditionally speaking, these books have been included by the Christian church because obviously we didn't have to worry about the Greek-speaking diaspora because most of our church was made up of the Greeks, Greek-speaking peoples, including the Jews, who used to speak Greek for commercial purposes. So even though the Hebrew books were very important, the Greek books that were recognized as not being outlandish were included. Now, of course, one of the books that they had some difficulty with was the Epistle to James. Uh, and, and very early on, it was accepted as canonical before the Council of Trent. But Luther highly objected to it because of its emphasis on works, number one. And number two... Uh, because it talks about the priests anointing people and things like that. Uh, my personal opinion is that, remember, in the Renaissance, they sought to recover all these ancient texts that had kind of fallen out of use or had disappeared in the monastery libraries of Europe. And when they began to do critical th thinking on it, they did discover that James had been a, an issue. Now... As I say, everybody pretty much accepted it as canonical. But since Luther objected to it, that's when the Council of Trent felt called upon to buy an authoritative statement, state what the books were authoritative and therefore inspired uh, were. And as you know, there were a number of books, even books that had certain things in the Christian tradition that were accepted as true, like the one is the Proto-Evangelium of James, which has the um, presentation of Mary in the temple. It was a feast that was celebrated from time immemorial, and it, was, it had to do with a pious tradition that Mary was presented in the temple as a temple virgin for most of her young life, from the time she was three until she married, you know, Joseph. But um, apart from that, no, the deuterocanonical books were considered deuterocanonical, except by the uh, rabbis. And then the people who went back and did research after 1,500 years of development basically decided the rabbis were right and all the fathers of the church were wrong, which it doesn't make any sense, really. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Brand new edition of EWTN Bookmark this Saturday afternoon at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Doug Keck talks with K.V. Turley and Fiorella De Maria 
about their book, This Thing of Darkness. It's a fascinating work of alternative fiction about Bela Lugosi. A gripping story of fantasy, chilling realities, and a clash between Hollywood horror and the horror of the world. This Thing of Darkness being discussed on EWTN's Bookmark this Saturday with Doug Keck, 4.30 Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Maria. She's a first-time caller in the Commonwealth of Virginia, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Maria, you're on with Father Brian. Good afternoon, Father. Um, I have a question, because this afternoon I listened to a Vietnamese priest who's preaching about uh, confession. And he said that when the priest gives you absolution, he's invoked, you know, by the whatever the prayer you, you, you say at the end, and it said, in the name of the forgive you your sins, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're not supposed to bless yourself or do the sign of the cross at that time. All you do is just saying amen. So I, my question is, I never heard that before. So what is the correct way when you, uh, you know, at that moment, uh, frankly, I don't think there's any rule about this at all. Uh, I think it's just priest's opinion, and he has a right to his opinion. But, uh, uh, you know, this liturgy thing has gotten out of hand, so much so that everybody objects to everything now and questions everything. Is, You know, uh, to my knowledge, there's nothing written about that in any of the liturgical books. Because for one thing, in Vatican II, they wanted to lessen the dependence on the rubrics, not increase them. And yet I know all kinds of priests who found all these strange rubrics that aren't in the book, and, and they tell people they can or can't do this stuff, where they have no, no source for that exactly, except what somebody told them in the seminary, some liturgist. Um, I don't know, frankly. Uh, I've never heard that, and I bless myself, so I... You know. Hey, go behind the screen. You don't have to worry about it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Hopefully that was helpful for you, Maria. We appreciate the call today. Still time for so. your calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Josh is watching us on YouTube, and he wants to know, are prayers more effective when they're prayed in Latin, and does the devil really hate Latin, making it most effective for exorcisms? <laughs> They're not more effective in Latin. However, one of the reasons they use Latin for exorcisms and recommend it is to try to distinguish between a person who has a psychological problem and obsession. Because if they had a psychological problem, they wouldn't understand Latin at all if they'd never studied it. But if it's really the devil, he understands it and he'll answer you back. So that's supposed to be the reason that they recommend the use of Latin, not because it's more efficacious um, at doing the exorcism, but because it, it makes it clearer what's going on, that it's not just a case of psychological issues. Because there are a lot of people that have psychological issues, and then they see all kinds of things, including the devil. But it's a case of trying to discern whether it actually is the devil that's in possession of the person, because, as I say, the devil understands Latin, and he will answer back in Latin. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Nancy writes in, Dear Father Milady, we are homebound and watch the daily Mass, including Friday Masses, online and partake in spiritual communion. Does that count toward First Friday devotions? Oh, someone else asked that, too. Uh, Frankly, Margaret Mary lived before they had television. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I just, I was, I I really don't know what the requirements would be as far as Jesus revealing this to Margaret Mary before they even invented television. Uh, Presumably, you've done the First Friday devotions most of your life. And... You only have to do it once, really, you know, (laughs) to have the indulgence and things like that. I I don't think I I would get uh, too troubled about these kinds of questions. Uh, To me, it's being overly scrupulous. It certainly can't hurt you, um, but uh, as to whether it fulfills the strict legal requirement for the indulgence, uh, I really don't know the answer to that. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, and this is this is kind of a an obligatory weekly question along these lines that we cover. Oh, is it not safe for a priest to hear confession? <laughs> uh, it's, an, it's an anonymous aunt who's writing in and says, My nephew is a baptized and confirmed non-practicing Catholic and is getting married to a non-Christian woman. They're going to have a non-religious ceremony and with his brother-in-law as the Internet-ordained pastor. The brother-in-law is a practicing Catholic, should his brother-in-law be officiating this wedding? No. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing as an internet-ordained pastor. I think the Protestants would have a heart attack over that, too. I mean, it's a highly personal act. and uh, I mean, I, uh, I'm always railing about this today. It seems like people think they can do everything on the Internet. I mean, I'm, in one community, I was governed by my superior who lived three doors down from the internet, from text messages. <laughs> and I finally said to someone, you know, I don't know, it may be my age because I'm in a totally different era, but I consider people who have to govern other people by text message to be not only rude, rude but impersonal and sometimes cowardly. You know, if you can't come and talk to me directly when I live five steps away, there's something going on about somebody somewhere. <laughs> that needs to be addressed. But they love it. The young people just love it. They they even make love on text message. And, uh, yeah, um, uh, no, stay away from that situation. It's not a good thing. And I doubt that wedding will endure, frankly. Uh, Lauren writes in, in the Mass, the priest says, Lord, remember your servant. Who is Uh the servant, the people or the priest? Oh, uh, you mean in the um, First Eucharistic Prayer, yeah. Uh Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's see, remember your servant. Uh, It says something, I think it's everybody, because as I recall, the context is the commemoration of the living, and then you have the commemoration of the dead, Right. and then there's one place 
where it's made um, uh, very, very clear that the people that being invoked then as the bishop and the pope. Right. But uh, other than that, the servants, it's generally the people. Remember, your servants who have gone before us with the sign of faith. and That's all the dead. Right. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and then Chet. <laughs> Chet would like to know, he said, for sacraments to be valid, how exact does the form and matter need to be? Well, you have to use the right matter. Uh, and, like, for example, you can't have... Um, Honey bread for the Eucharist, because that's more like a cake. Uh, you can with leavening in the bread, because the Eastern Church uses leavening. That doesn't make it less bread. It would be illicit in the Latin Church, but not invalid. But if you add, use additives like honey, that uh, uh, compromises the validity. When it comes to baptism, you can't use Coca-Cola or gin. You have to use water. And, uh, and and so on. Uh, and then regarding the form, the form is actually quite simple for most of them. But, you know, there was a, a you have to use the words exactly. You can't change the words. How It's all based on the psychology of ritual. Uh, ritual, according to psychologists, is a means of expressing the inexpressible. And... Uh, so the exact words are important. Like, like when we used to play games as children, if you try to break the rules, you know, you'd be in big trouble because it's always been played that way. It's a similar thing here. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Milady, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener, Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Colin Donovan. Until we get together then, God bless. God bless.